Stories, fables, ghostly tales. A series of large Victorian houses who host unique kinds of families. These houses are mysterious, hold secrets that others would dare not reveal, or would wish to share. What if one of those secrets got out? And Lily Madwip is a seer of sorts, premonitions her parents would call them. Although accurate, there is a little wanting for her timing for such premonitions. Welcome, listeners, to your No Sleep Friday. I bring to you two stories approved by their authors to be narrated on this show. Our first is Grandma Says We Can't Look Out the Windows by N.M. Wrights. And our second story is My Name is Lily Madwip and I See Things Before They Happen by Lillian underscore Madwip. Both no-sleep stories are of intrigue, mystery, and death. I'll include the links to both authors in the episode notes, and be sure to check out their other pieces of work. In fact, I'll be reaching out to more no-sleep authors in the future to get more no-sleep stories just for your lovely ears. Right now, I'm enjoying Earl Grey Royale tonight, folks. Let me read to you what it tastes like. This is straight from the box. Yunnan leaves blended with bergamot produce a mysterious and complex brew, a deep red infusion with a mature smoky aroma, a must for curious and adventurous black tea lovers. All the flavours I love in tea, especially that bergamot. Yum. I think this is my second cup, so pour yourself some tea and turn the lights off, the sound up. And get ready for something creepy. Grandma says, we can't look out the windows. Everyone in my family lives in the same house. I don't mean the same physical house, like some big multi-generational living setup. No. Almost every member of my family, direct and extended, lives in the houses that are identical to each other. Large, Victorian, and kind of creepy if you're not used to it. When someone dies, the family gets another family member to live in that house instead. There are a few outliers, but honestly, they tend to be younger members of the family who will one day wind up living in one of those houses. I listened to a radio show once where people talked about the funniest things they misunderstood as kids. One person thought that Nielsen families were all families with the name Nielsen, and they got to grade TV shows because they represented some sort of perfect cross-section of America. Well, I thought everyone's families all lived in houses that looked exactly alike. This wasn't totally unfounded. I grew up in a small town, and the only friend of mine who had family there lived near each other in a little subdivision, where all the houses were identical. It made sense. Setting aside my childhood misconceptions, the houses each had specific rules. Again, this was something I accepted as a child, though I now recognize how strange it was. 
When we visited my Aunt Megan's house, we had to wear two watches each. She insisted on it, and would check each of us before coming in the door, to ensure they were both working and synchronized. We were never allowed to go inside my Uncle Frank's house. We would meet him outside, play in the yard, and go to the bathroom in a porta potty he rented before our visits. From time to time, I would swear that I saw people wearing dark robes standing in the windows, watching us play in the yard. Our house was fairly normal, as these things went. However, there were two doors on the upper level that had many locks on the doors, and I never once saw them opened. My cousins lived in the strictest of the houses. No one was ever allowed to walk around alone. You always had to be with a buddy, and you could never be out of sight of another person. Once, my sister wandered off alone, and said she saw me playing upstairs, and almost followed until I realized she was gone, and called for her downstairs, and told her to come back. My grandparents, though, lived in a house where the windows were always closed. Every window throughout the house had a blackout shade, and a heavy curtain around it, and we were forbidden to touch them. My sisters and cousins would all try to peek out from time to time, and were harshly scolded for it, but it never bothered me. The weird rules were just something I lived with. That was probably why my grandmother asked me to watch the house when she was away. My grandfather had passed a few years before, and one day, she got a letter that a cousin somewhere overseas was ill, and she announced she would be going there and would be gone for the summer. She chose me to check on the house once a day, feeding the cats and ensuring nothing had gone wrong. She told me I'd always listened to the rules and was the only logical choice. I was the honey child. A weird phrase to be sure. I didn't mind. It was school break. My girlfriend was on vacation and the money my grandmother was paying me for the trouble was enough that I didn't have to get a job and could take a few extra classes online instead. The first few days were fine. I went in, checked all the bathrooms for water leaks, fed the cats, and left. A few days later, while walking upstairs, I passed a window and could hear the faint sound of voices through it. My grandmother lives on a remote and large piece of land, so hearing someone meant they were trespassing. Without thinking, I moved the curtains and pulled up the blinds. The world outside was not ours. Instead of my grandmother's yard, I was looking at a futuristic-looking city, where people moved about on contraptions I had only seen in fake movies. I was entranced. Watching people dart back and forth on contraptions straight out of a science fiction movie. That, for a minute, I forgot that what I was looking at was literally impossible. I quickly moved to another window and opened the shades. Here I saw a dark beast floating just beyond the window. It looked like some sort of mutant bat with giant leathery wings and one unblinking yellow eye. Another window showed a burning hellscape as far as the eye could see. In the distance, I watched the outlines of giant beasts moving through pools of fire. My head spinning, I went running to the front door outside, ready for whatever insane world awaited me. 
Instead, I saw my car, and my grandmother's yard, and the trees that ringed the property in the distance. Everything was fine. Whatever I saw beyond the windows did not affect the world I lived in. Over the next few days, I started to catalogue all of the worlds I saw. There were 32 windows, including one that appeared to just show our world. Some were frightening, like the fire world, or the world full of people as far as the eye could see with completely white eyes, just standing and staring at the window. Others appeared desolate, like the ice world, or one that was heavily forested but where I never saw a single living creature, not even a bird. Others appeared to be fairly normal, like ours, just slightly different. One seemed to contain just a single entity, the bat creature. Though the bat often appeared as other things, from a child to a kitten, to a fantastical looking bird with four sets of wings and three heads. Every time I left the house, I carefully covered each window before locking up, careful to ensure nothing was out of place. This lasted until Gary and his girlfriend broke up. I was about to leave my grandmother's when he called, drunk and sobbing about her leaving him. What terrified me was that he was driving around, but after talking to him for a minute, I realized he was right down the road, so I told him to meet me there to sleep it off. I couldn't have him out, potentially killing someone in his condition. Gary was a mess, so I got him to one of the bedrooms and went downstairs to find water and some Advil to take for what was sure to be a rough night. All the while, down the hall, I could hear him crying about Amy. I was filling up the glass of water when I heard a scream and the lights in the house all went out. I stumbled upstairs with the flashlight on my phone to see Gary on the floor in front of an open window. What happened? I shouted. It was Amy. She was outside trying to climb into the window. She was going to fall. He sobbed. I slammed the window shut, but the bat creature that normally lurked just beyond it was now gone. Where did it go? I demanded. Gary shook his head. What was that thing? That wasn't Amy. He started crying again. I left him there and ran downstairs to find the front door now open and the beast gone into the night. My grandmother is gone for another few weeks and I don't have a way to reach her. But that thing is out there somewhere. I hear noises in the night now. Giant wings flapping outside. Two children have disappeared from their yards without anyone seeing a thing. That window was closed for a reason. My name is Lily Madwip, and I see things before they happen. Don't stare at me, assface. That's my brother, Roger. He doesn't see things before they happen. I know this because if he did, he would see what's about to happen to him. Then again, maybe he does. But people like us can't see things that are about to happen to ourselves. I don't know, truthfully. All I know is that in about three minutes, Roger is going to die. You're going to die, I tell him. Did you just threaten me? He snarls. Roger is six years older than me. He goes to high school and has two best friends named Skeeter and Dustin. 
they liked to wear shirts without sleeves that had the names of heavy metal bands on them. Sometimes they hang out in the garage and try to play music like those bands, until my dad goes out and yells at them to stop. At his funeral, they're going to wear jackets and ties, and their hair is going to be combed for once. I'll never see them after that, which is nice. I love Roger because he's my brother, but when he's gone, things will be just a little bit nicer. Sorry, Roger. No, I told him truthfully. I'm just trying to warn you. I love you, Roger. Shut up, weirdo. He punches me in the shoulder and I cry, like I'm supposed to. But it doesn't really hurt. Mum's head swivels around on her neck from the front of the car and gives us both that look that says she regrets having us. I know she doesn't, but all parents think that from time to time. I wonder where I'd be right now if I'd never had kids. No, I'm not a mind reader too. I just know these things. Will you knock it off back there? Mum asks. It's not really a question though, it's an order. Adults can give orders in the form of questions. If you're a kid and you try to do this, it doesn't work. I once tried to order Roger to give me back my doll, Pascar, by asking him. And he laughed at me and twisted Pascar's head off. Mum had to sew it back on, but she's never been one for sewing. So it's kind of crooked now. I told her I didn't mind. That it gave him personality. Mum and Dad think it's weird that I name my doll Pascar. I don't know why. Pascar was an angel, after all. People don't think it's weird if you name your doll Gabriel or Michael or Layla. But give it the name of Uriel or Gavriel or Pascar, and everybody gives you funny looks. I hug Pascar in my arms and look out the front of the car. There's a sign that says, Rest Area 1 Mile. And beneath it, a smaller sign that says, Next rest area, 46 miles. At the speed my dad drives, that should take us about half an hour, I think. Rest area coming up, Dad says. Does anybody need to go? We stopped hours back at McDonald's, and I had a cheeseburger with some fries and a small Sprite. I couldn't finish the burger or the fries, but the Sprite made my tummy happy, because sometimes I get a little car sick. So I drank the entire thing. Now I need to go. But this is where Roger dies. So I lie. I don't. Thinking about having to go makes it worse. I cross my legs. Roger notices. Lily has to go. She's squirming around back here. I don't want her pissing on me. He makes a grossed out face. And I can appreciate the genuine disgust of being peed on by someone else. But Roger... I'm trying to save your life here. Mum looks back again and I shake my head at her. Lily, if you have to go. I don't. She does and I do too, Roger declares. I don't think Roger actually has to go. Dad turns onto the ramp for the rest stop, ending the conversation. There's two lanes, one for the big trucks and one for little cars. Our station wagon takes the second lane and wraps back around to go up the hill to the parking lot for the rest area. There's some sort of big rock on a pedestal with a commemorative plaque at the base, with lots of names of people who are dead. Other families are going in and coming out of the glass-wrapped building. I wonder how far away we are from the nearest hospital. Everybody out, Dad declares. Lily, hurry. 
Mum says as she unbuckles her seatbelt and opens the door. I look over at Roger one last time and try to smile. He looks back at me. For a moment, there's the faintest glimmer of recognition in his eyes. I think maybe he's going to shut the door and stay in the car. Then he sneers at me, and the moment is lost. Stop staring at me, assface! Language, Roger? Dad says in his tone that means he doesn't actually care. But he has to act like he does so Mum won't get mad. We all get out. Mum holds my hand as we cross the parking lot, even though I'm not a baby. I keep looking back at Roger and Dad and waiting for it to happen. Roger is going to die. I know it. I just don't know how. Maybe that big rock is going to come loose from its base and fall right on top of Roger like a boot on an ant. I've stepped on ants before. I always say sorry afterwards. But it's kind of pointless by then. I wonder if his insides will squish out like they do on ants. The rock does not squish Roger. Mum takes me into the women's restroom, where we do our business. The toilets are those ones that flush automatically. They always scare me. Like I think the one that I'm on won't detect that I'm on it anymore and flush, and I'll get sucked in. I go, but the whole time I'm waiting to hear the shouts and cries from outside. Maybe Roger gets sucked into the automatic toilet. My mum has a word for something like that. Apropos. Roger does not get sucked into the automatic toilets. We meet out in the lobby area where they have an information kiosk and little cubby holes filled with sightseeing maps and brochures for hotels and water parks. I want to look at one about an outdoor animal safari zoo, but Dad is in a hurry to get back on the road. So Mum drags me back out to the parking lot. We pile into the station wagon with empty bladders. I'm feeling a bit confused because Roger is still alive and it's been at least 10 minutes since I knew he was going to die. I don't say anything on the matter because mum and dad don't like it when I talk about my premonitions, as they call them. Also, I'd rather not jinx it if I'm actually wrong for once. Roger's kind of mean, but he's my brother, and I love him. I hug Pascal and stare out the window as we pull out of the parking space. Suddenly, Pascal is snatched from my arms. I turn, startled, to see Roger holding the doll out his window, waving it in his hand, grinning. Hey, assface, wanna see if your dolly can fly? I realize this is the moment. I can't help but say something. This is when you die. I tell him solemnly. Roger's smirk is replaced by one of anger. He lets go of Pascar, who disappears beneath the wheel of our car. In my distress, I cry out, lurching against my seatbelt, as if I can whisk out the window and snatch Pascar up before he's lost forever. Mum turns and starts asking loudly what just happened. Dad turns to yell at us to stop it. Lily, stop screaming. Roger, what did you do? Roger, what did you do? My father is looking in the rearview mirror at what he considers his two biggest mistakes. My mother is passing her glare back and forth between me and Roger. Roger is looking at mum and dad and trying to put on an innocent expression as he lies and tells them that I started it. Only one of us is looking at the lane for the big trucks that we're currently merging with at dad's typical high rate of speed. And that's me. 
What do I see out Roger's window but a giant truck with lots of big tires and a large trailer on back barreling down at us with a driver in the cab who looks as shocked and confused as I am. I'm not screaming for Pascal anymore. I'm screaming for Dad to brake or steer or anything. But he can't tell the difference between one type of screaming and the next. And anyway, it's too late. Do you know what a T-bone is? I always thought it was the type of steak. My uncle George ordered a T-bone once at a restaurant. And he got this mammoth piece of meat with the bone still in it. That's why they call it a T-bone. Because the bone is there. And it looks like the letter T. Apparently T-bone is also a type of collision where one vehicle strikes another in the side. Because the two vehicles make a T-shape, just like the bone in the steak my uncle ordered, that's what the big truck does to us. It T-bones us right before the on-ramp to the interstate. The nearest hospital is 23 minutes away. I would have never guessed that number. They take Roger and my dad there in an ambulance. Dad has a dislocated shoulder and a lot of cuts and bruises. Roger is airlifted to Boston Memorial. He gets to fly in a helicopter, although he isn't conscious for it, so he kind of misses out. He dies from internal injuries before he gets there. Mum and I are treated for lots of little cuts from glass and stuff. The driver of the truck is fine but shook up by the whole thing. I hope he doesn't blame himself for Roger's death. That was nobody's fault but Roger. One of the emergency medical people who treats us on the scene finds Pascal and gives him back to me. He always finds his way back to me. The EMT asks me what my doll's name is and gives me a funny look when I tell him. I don't tell him that he's about to get a call from an old lady who suffered a stroke in some place called Middlebury. That kind of trivial information is lost on most people. Kind of like how I know my mum and dad are going to cry and hug each other and worry about Roger until they find out he's dead. After that, dad will get more distant because he secretly blames me. It's not a secret, dad. I know. And mum will hug me a little tighter each night. I see it. But they don't need to know I do. I hope Roger is in a better place. But Pascal tells me he's not. Pascal is always right. Two brilliant no sleep stories to end our Fridays on, mates. As I mentioned in the intro, I'll be reaching out to more of these lovely authors and grabbing more delicious no sleep stories for you. On top of this, Lillian Madwip has two more parts to this Lily Madwip story. As for what you've heard today is just one part of a three-part series, and I've got approval to read all of it. A big thank you to both authors. Next week, I'm going to jump into the remainder of the Lily Madwip series and then move on to either Demonology or Japanese Tales for Wednesday. Can't wait to see you then, mates, and a big thank you for listening. Have a kick-ass weekend. And as always, till next time.